Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be here again uh, to share God's word with you. What a privilege it is for me to do that. Didn't know this was happening until Friday night. So I seem to be the, the preacher that comes off the substitutes bench. But I'm very happy to do that. And uh, like I say, it's a privilege to share from, from God's word. I was reading a book, an e-book, earlier this week uh, by David Pawson. Got a bit of a rumble there, is that better? By David Pawson, and the book is called Completing Luther's Reformation. And there were two stories that he told in that book that really struck me, and I thought I should share them with you today. The first was about a hell's angel known to the author, David Pawson. He lived in the same town, actually. And this guy was into drugs and motorbikes and antisocial behavior. And he had an image of Satan tattooed onto his chest. Well, this guy was converted to Christ. And he knew he should be baptized, but he kept putting it off. He kept avoiding it because he noticed when you go into the water, that your shirt becomes transparent as you come out of the water. And he didn't want people to see this tattoo of the devil on his chest. He felt ashamed about it. So despite people encouraging him and urging him to get baptized, he kept putting it off. He said, oh, maybe later, maybe another time. Finally, he got hold of a plastic surgeon uh, in his local hospital. And he asked if there was any way that this tattoo could be removed from his chest. And the surgeon said, yes, there are actually two ways in which we can get rid of it. Firstly, we could burn it off. Uh, it's pretty painful, and it will leave a very big scar on your chest. The second possibility is we could take a skin graft from your thigh and transplant it onto your chest. But it costs a lot of money. You can't get it on the NHS, and there's a long waiting list. You'll have to wait months. Well, the guy said, I can't wait months, and I haven't got any money anyway. So he asked a friend to baptize him in his back garden swimming pool surrounded by other Christian friends. And he went down into the water to bury his past and to wash away his sins. And when he came up, identifying with the resurrected Christ, everyone could see that his tattoo had completely gone completely vanished. <clears throat> that was an amazing story. And the second story he told was just as amazing. It's about a friend of his, David Pawson's, from London. And at school, this man had been very close friends with another boy. But after they left school, they lost touch, as often happens. And after leaving school, this guy's, David Pawson's friend, became a Christian and eventually a pastor. The other guy, his friend, got into drugs and crime and all sorts of stuff, and his life began to spiral out of control. And finally, he became suicidal, and he decided to, he was going to end it all. And then he remembered his friend from school, and he thought, I wonder where he is now. Maybe if I could get in contact with him, he could help me. Well, this was before the days of Facebook and social media and all that, and he didn't know how to trace him, so he went to a spiritist medium. Don't ever do that. That's not a good idea, but that's what he did. And he said, can you help me locate my friend from school? 
Well, this medium went into a trance and she said, I can describe for you the house in which he lives. She said, it's opposite a big park with many trees. And she gave detail after detail of the house this guy lived in. And she said, I can't give you the exact address, but it's somewhere in North London. That's a pretty big place, isn't it? But then she said, I've got some bad news for you. He died actually a couple of years ago. And she even gave the date of his death. But out of curiosity, he set off anyway. And he spent weeks looking around uh, houses, around North London parks with trees. And he finally found a house that exactly matched the description of this house that she had described in her trance. Well, he heartened his mouth, he knocked on the door, and his old friend from school opened the door. Uh, well, they talked for a long while. This pastor guy, he led his old friend to Christ, and his life began to turn around again. And then he said to his pastor friend, it's an amazing thing, but uh, the medium told me that you were dead. And the pastor just laughed, and he asked, oh, really, what date did I die? When did I die? And uh, he gave the date to him. He said, well, that's amazing. That's the very date I was baptized. Talk about being buried with Christ in baptism. It's, uh, it's a real thing. So two amazing stories, and I thought I'd share them with you this morning because I think they make a really good bridge between what, was, what Phil was sharing with us last Sunday about baptism and what we're going to be looking at today, which is Jesus' battle with evil forces, the devil himself in the wilderness. And we're in Luke chapter 4 today. There is something about being baptized in water and I would say being baptized in the spirit as well, that the devil just doesn't like. doesn't like baptism. And baptism gives you a decisive edge in the spiritual battle as well. These two things are linked. And so following last week's passage about Jesus' baptism, after a little parenthesis on Jesus' family tree, Luke uh, next gets into Jesus leaving the Jordan and heading into the desert for 40 days of rigorous self-denial, prayer, and fasting. How many of you are up for that? 40 days of prayer and fasting and self-denial. Well, Matthew says, after Jesus' baptism, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark says it happened at once, immediately. It was a, it was a sudden change of direction. Thinking back to last week, Jesus has just been overwhelmed by an outpouring of his father's affection and approval as his father's dearly loved only son at his baptism. Jesus is in a good place. All is well. And I think most of us have been there sometime in our life, somewhere near it. A really good spiritual high, like maybe your conversion, or maybe you've had a glimpse of heaven in an amazing time of worship. Perhaps your baptism, maybe when you've witnessed an amazing miracle, a healing, uh, perhaps a very special night at Stonely or Spring Harvest or some convention, something like that. 
And it's great when that happens. We love just sensing the presence of God all over us. But life is not like that all the time, is it? It wasn't for Jesus, and it isn't for us either. So well, let's read what happens next. Matthew, sorry, Luke 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord to you, your, your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this church which believes it. We love your word. We believe it here, Lord. We want to obey it. We want it to be part of our lives. And as we've been singing about your greatness this morning and welcoming your presence with us, Father, we pray that you would draw close to us by the Holy Spirit, same spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Holy Spirit, draw near to us now to bring out from this page in our Bible, a truth that will change our lives and strengthen us and draw us closer to you and make us more like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you're going through a season of testing at the moment, or if you seem to struggle constantly with temptation. It does not mean that you are a spiritual minnow or that God doesn't love you. Terry Virgo says this, he says, rainbows never appear on clear days. Think about that. Often, he says, you get a clearer view of God's wonderful covenant faithfulness when you're going through one of life's storms. And temptation is a little bit like a gymnasium. 
It's a way God um, strengthens us and builds up our spiritual muscle to make us stronger and fitter in uh, our spiritual ministries. I'll make three points this morning. The first is that Satan attacks us when we are at our most vulnerable. Goes for the Achilles heel. This is verses one to four. Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. And then Luke adds with a bit of understatement, he was hungry. Well, he would be. Jesus at this time must be absolutely physically spent. He is suffering from the severe heat by day and extreme cold by night. Depending on what time of the year it was, temperatures could get up to 40 degrees during the daytime and descend to about four degrees, colder than a fridge at nighttime. Mark's gospel mentions that Jesus was with the wild animals. The desert of Judea is a, is a harsh and forbidding place. Uh, it's got scorpions and snakes and uh, wolves and jackals and the like that inhabit it. Now, if Jesus were to write a TripAdvisor review of his 40-day break in the desert, it would read like a holiday from hell. Hotel, very basic. Food, minimal. Aircon, non-existent. Pests, everywhere. Really annoying fellow guest. There's his review. And notice Satan, his really annoying fellow guest, chooses to attack at the moment when Jesus is at his most vulnerable. Yeah? Uh, not the spiritual high at his baptism. He leaves him alone then. He bides his time and he holds his fire, waiting for the moment when we are tired, when we're sick, when we're discouraged, when we're alone. That's when he goes for us. And Satan will come to you just like he came to Jesus when you're most exposed and he will put bait on his hook and the bait is whatever is attractive to you at that time. Temptation is basically bait on a hook and the devil's aim is to offer you whatever short-term pleasure that draws you to bite on his grubby old hook so he can reel you in towards death because the wages of sin is death. Death is a result of sin. The message version says, you work for sin all your life, and as your pension, you get death. What a great way of putting it. That's Satan's agenda. Satan is like a crooked used car dealer. Sorry if any of you deal in used cars, but Satan is pretty good at his job. He won't show you the rust underneath the chassis. He'll say, come on, sit on these nice, comfortable leather seats. You'll love this. The devil is a salesman. Like he's a good salesman. He could sell shaving cream to the Taliban, the devil. And so he doesn't say to Jesus, let me be Lord of your life, Jesus, and tell you what to do, because he knows Jesus is going to tell him to get lost. And so he tries something a little bit more subtle, and he does with us. If you're the son of God, you can just tell these stones here to become bread. Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus hasn't eaten for over a month. He looks at this pile of sand and pebbles in front of him in the heat haze, and he notices that how much they just look like freshly baked granary loaves. He can even smell the baker shop in Nazareth as he looks at them. 
This is how the devil tempts us. Satan doesn't say, why don't you have some unhappiness in your marriage relationship? Because you just say, no, thank you. I'd rather be happy. Instead, he'll say, why don't you just have some fun on this porn site? Nobody's watching. Great. Doesn't tell you that it's going to reduce your libido and introduce tension in the marriage relationship. It doesn't tell you that divorce rates are higher for those who are addicted to porn. And Satan won't say, got a good idea. Why don't you waste all your money and run up massive debts because that's not attractive to you or anyone? Instead, he'll say, let's spend an evening gambling together. Think of all the exhilaration. Think of the buzz. I think it could be your night. I can feel it in my waters. You're going to win tonight. And he won't say, do you know what? I could really help you become a selfish person that nobody likes. Because who wants that? So instead, what he says is, don't strain yourself loving and serving other people. Don't bother with that. Put your feet up. Have a life of ease. Look after number one. You're worth it. And as so often, Satan here, he plays with doubt. Twice he says, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. With you and me, it's not if you're the son of God, because none of us are. He'll say things like, oh, if you were a true Christian, would you really think what you've just been thinking? Oh, I don't think you would. Or do you honestly think that God loves you as much as he loves everybody else? with your track record, or surely someone who was genuinely saved would have more faith than you've got by now. Well, if you get that kind of message from Satan, just tell him to go to hell. That's really where he belongs anyway. If you have asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your savior and to be Lord of your life, then the matter is settled forever. You are chosen before the creation of the world. You are a child of God. You are born from above. You are the apple in God's eye. You are adopted and loved by your heavenly father. You are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Your sin is paid for in full forever. You are completely forgiven and renewed. Your filthy rags have gone and you are now dressed in the pure, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places at your disposal. That is what God's word says about you. Don't let Satan tell you anything else. Well, Revelation 12 verse 10 calls Satan the accuser, rhymes with loser, because he's both. And Jesus is absolutely clear about your spiritual status. He's not an accuser. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over already from death to life. It could not be clearer what our spiritual status is in Christ if we have given our lives to him and surrendered them in faith. 
Jesus is not going to let Satan call the tune here for a bite to eat. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. It's what the Bible says, go away. Second thing here, Satan wants our worship. He wants our attention. He wants our worship, which is verses 5 to 8. So when... um, uh, uh, in these verses, we get an insight of his ultimate ambition. What does Satan really want at the end of the day? Ultimately, he wants the whole world to fall down at his feet and adore him and tell him how special he is. So in verse 5, he sells Jesus a vain, egotistical dream. He shows Jesus all the glories of the earth. He shows him the pyramids of Upper Egypt, the magnificent palace of Versailles in France. He shows him Big Ben. He shows him Hollywood. He shows him the Kremlin in Moscow, the Taj Mahal, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He shows him the whole lot and a thousand other marvels. That's the bait dangling at the end of his hook. All this can be yours. John Piper says, prosperity cannot be a proof of God's favor since it is what the devil promises to those who worship him. This is the prosperity gospel Satan's got here. All of this can be yours. Just name it and claim it, Lord. You can be rich beyond your wildest dream. Just sign on my dotted line, Satan says. And he dangles the keys for all these amazing wonders of the world in front of Jesus's eyes. But Jesus doesn't take the bait because when you check all the fine print it says at the bottom the legal owner of all these kingdoms will have to bow down at satan's feet and worship him do you have uh, desires and aspirations i hope you do but don't let your dreams and your ambitions Remove God from first place in your life. So again, Jesus, he counters Satan's offer with scripture. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I was watching an interview with the Bible scholar, theologian Wayne Grudem last year, and he talked about a friend of his called Vern Poitras. I think he's a Theological College principal now, Vern Poitras. And he said, I first met Vern Poitras at Harvard University, where he was a first-year PhD student in mathematics. He said he'd done his undergraduate degree at Caltech, California Institute of Technology, and he was first in his class academically. So this is no slouch. This is a guy who knows his stuff. He said, I saw him reviewing with a note card on a Bible passage. He would read, look up, and look away, and then look down, and then move the note card down. He was reviewing what he had memorized in Scripture. And so Wayne Grudem said, I said to him, have you memorized very much of the Bible? And he said, some. I said, how much? And he said, well, John, the Gospel of John. I said, wow, anything else? He said, oh, Romans to third John. He had memorized 
all the New Testament letters and an entire gospel by his early to mid-20s. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm never going to memorize that much. I don't, even me- I don't even know a whole chapter by heart. And I don't expect you to memorize that much either, but to commit a few key strategic Bible verses to memory is such a lethal weapon against Satan in times of temptation, which is how Jesus did it. Third thing, Satan wants to divert us from our calling, from our destiny, verses verses 9 to 13. Here we see that he doesn't give up if he fails the first time. He keeps going at it, keeps nagging away. Satan is like one of those velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Do you remember the film? They repeatedly spring out at their electrified Uh, bars on their cage on the off chance they'll spot a weakness and learn it well the devil he just keeps chipping away at our defenses if you are the son of god he says uh, verse 12 verse 9 sorry there he goes again if you're the son of god because he knows that some of us if we listen to the same half truth over and over and over again if it's relentless and unremitting, he knows it will grind down our resistance and we will end up just accepting it for a quiet life. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple. And for the devil's next trick, he gets out his pocket King James Bible because Satan knows that a verse from Psalm 91, that's going to sound pretty convincing. He will tell his angels to catch you. So you won't so much as stub your toe. Do you know, I could take verses from the book of Ecclesiastes out of their context, and I could preach to you this morning pessimism, existentialism, cynicism, skepticism, alcoholism, sexism, and even atheism. But that's taking it out of context. If you read the Bible systematically in its context, rather than a verse here and a verse there, you'll not be fooled by the devil's lightweight Bible studies. So Satan here is trying to deflect Jesus from his mission. Jesus could have his name in lights. He could be a magnificent circus act with adoring fans from all over the world. He could have celebrity and fame. It's right there. And Satan thinks, if I can just get Jesus doing magic tricks for the public, Maybe he'll forget what his real mission is, to come and to seek and save the lost, to come and die and suffer and give his life as a ransom and to take away the sins of the world. Satan wants to get you off off track for your destiny that God has for you. God has plans for you, but Satan wants to lure you and me into useless vanity projects instead. So here's the bait dangling before you. Bite that hook and you'll go nowhere with God and you'll waste the gifts he has given you. Well, I'm drawing towards a close now and uh, I say wistfully, if only years and years of Christian living somehow made temptation easier to overcome, if only. Alas, 
In my experience, it doesn't at all. Temptation, though, is not sin as long as you resist it. There's a story about a, a married Christian businessman, and he's driving to this three-day marketing conference, and he's car-sharing at his company's request with a very pretty young colleague, and halfway there, she just says to him that, uh, as a throwaway remark, really, that she finds him very attractive. And uh, a bit later, her hand accidentally on purpose brushes his knee. Uh, he says nothing. But uh, he carries on driving until he gets to a service station. And he pulls up and he says, I just need to fill up the car and uh, make a quick phone call. Well, 10 minutes later, they're back on the road. And she asks if the call was urgent. He said, oh, yeah, it was. He said, very urgent. I had to call my pastor, he said. And I said, pray for me, brother, because there's a woman in my car who's trying to seduce me. <laughs> so the atmosphere changes in an instant, goes very cold, and she never raised the matter again. That's practical, isn't it? But I want to end with something even more practical in terms of application. Jesus arrives, we're told in verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit. And he's full of the Holy Spirit because of what we saw last week at his baptism. The Spirit comes on him in power. But in verse 14, it says this. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, not battered and exhausted by all these temptations, by this duel with the devil in the desert, but in the power of the Spirit, strong and victorious. And I conclude from that, brothers and sisters, that the very best way to resist and overcome the daily battles of temptations that we face is to be continually, continually, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Galatians 5 verse 6 says, walk by the Spirit. That is every day, walk by the Holy Spirit, and you will not thereby gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Shall we stand to pray?